Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. Well, I love to hear stories and tell stories. There are two stories that I want to share with you today. The first story I heard in the middle of the Iraq War in a dusty medic tent. That story made me lay down my weapon in the sand, never to load another bullet in the chamber again. The second story is the one that is going to make your ears burn. It's the one that your friends are going to say isn't true, can't be true, because the world just doesn't work that way. Preemptive love is that second story. That story healed my heart after violence had shattered it into a thousand pieces. It's the idea that instead of striking my enemy first before he strikes me, I'm going to love first. It's running towards the person that you should be running away from. It looks like giving, giving someone your trust who hasn't earned it. It's when I choose to put my personal, when I choose to put a person above my own safety in order to build a new relationship. This irrational way to see our enemies has left over 1,000 children in its wake with mended hearts. The surgical scar across their chest bears witness to a new story, a story where their enemies have reached out and worked to save their lives instead of taking them. These life-saving surgeries for children born with lethal heart defects are unmaking years of violence, suspicion, and bombs. This idea of seeing each other and relating to our enemies was born out of the dreams of three American 20-somethings as they lived in Baghdad during some of the most bloodiest years of the Iraq War. You see, preemptive love wasn't just an idea. It was a posture. It was a way to live through violence. Violence that unmakes the world. Violence that actually unmakes us. But preemptive love unmakes that same violence. It remakes and it can reshape my world and your world. It reimagines what we've been told our differences are and creates a new story, a new future together. Before I can tell you how preemptive love is remaking my world, I have to share with you my unmaking story, my war story. The way I was shattered by my own violence, the way my trust in the good guys was betrayed, and the way I was abandoned by my own broken belief system. Well, I was determined to go to college, even though my parents weren't able to help me, which meant at the ripe old age of 17, I signed up to serve in the Army National Guard. Like you are now, I was a college student, running from one deadline to the next class, all the while trying to fit in playing as much ultimate frisbee as I could. On September 11, 2001, the day the Twin Towers was bombed, I was sitting in class when the professor urgently turned on the TV. Instantly, we were watching people leap from crumbling buildings in real time. What would this attack mean? Ultimately, it propelled America into invading Afghanistan a month later and declaring war on Iraq a year later. It propelled 2.3 million soldiers into waging war in the desert. The year that I had finally graduated college, I had served all but six months of my commitment to the Army National Guard. I was trained first as a foot soldier and then as a combat medic. Three months before I was planning to be discharged and wrap up this whole part of my life, I was called up to active duty in Iraq. 
to say I was flabbergasted would be an understatement. My guard unit hadn't been, hadn't been called up in 30 years. And we looked it. We were a battalion 500 strong of college students, middle-aged shoe salesmen, and pizza delivery guys. Bombs were being dropped on Baghdad during the nightly news. And I still couldn't wrap my head around the fact that I was going over there. I remember feeling like it was all unreal to me. Rumors and debates of weapons of mass destruction and Saddam's chemical warfare attacks blared across the media at me. The phone call telling me to put my affairs in order sounded like something a recent college student shouldn't know anything about, and I didn't. Two months later, I flew into the ink black desert night with my gas mask on and a weapon strapped to my side. I was tasked to distribute atropine antidote syringes to my company of soldiers the minute we tumbled out into the desert air in case we were chemically gassed. We never knew how long we would be deployed there. We were never told when we would get to go home. 397 nights, I slept in a desert tent with a 9mm Beretta lying next to me before I boarded a C-130 cargo plane to return home. Now some say that when you go through something hard or traumatic, you're afforded an opportunity to find out who you really are. I believe that I met myself for the first time during those 397 days, and that was the most damaging thing that happened to my soul during the war. You see, I grew up in a pretty black and white worldview, like there's always a right and there's always a wrong. Us versus them, good guys and bad guys. And most importantly, God was always on our side. This was as simple as the church down the road who didn't baptize the way we did, or people who voted for the opposing political party. But the thing about a belief system is that if it's pushed far enough, good guys end up being able to do anything they want to the bad guys. The end justifies the means, even if that meant taking a life. I never really gave much thought to war. I accepted it all, and like my culture, I looked up to anyone wearing a uniform. Looking back, I think I dodged the reality of what I believed about killing people as a soldier because I carried a tidy little excuse on my back called a medic bag. I skirted the issue by telling myself and others that my job was to help people, not hurt people, ignoring the reality of what I carried on my right hip. The night it all came blasting apart, was one month in during an evening meeting in an impossibly hot and dusty tent in the desert. We were getting briefed on our convoy to Baghdad the next day. Here's how it went as I wrote it later in my journal. May 31st, the dust was stinging my eyes while I struggled to hear what the commander was saying over the wail of the wind beating down on the desert tent. I was 23 years old, preparing to convoy across the desert into a war zone when the idea of taking a life became a life and death reality to me. The briefing was informing our company of our duty to keep the convoy rolling at all costs tomorrow. He related an enemy tactic of pushing little children in front of a convoy to stop a truck, which would leave the convoy vulnerable to attack. I was grasping at his words over the din of the soldiers whispering next to me and the drum of the sandstorm beating down. If you break the convoy in order to avoid harming a child, you will be responsible for your fellow soldiers in the last truck getting attacked. I hope you understand your duty. If anybody isn't able to do their duty and protect their battle buddies, stand up now and identify yourself. 
His words hung in the air, suspended by dread for me. I knew that despite the direct order from my commander and the medals that we pinned to my chest, something else was pushing back and it wasn't letting up. Something seared across my soul and wouldn't let me value my life or an American soldier's above an Iraqi child's. I was breaking apart on the inside. If I stood up and said I wasn't going to follow this order to run over a child, I would be betraying the uniform I wore and branded a traitor. I kept envisioning myself telling Jesus, I had to, I had to take a life to save a life. The hollowness of those words echoed inside my soul. Everything I believed and all the military discipline that had been beaten into me couldn't quiet the screaming in my soul. Soldiers put their lives in each other's hands. It's part of what I signed up for. But everything in me was shrieking that I couldn't run over and kill an Iraqi child to save my fellow soldier's life or to keep our convoy safe from being ambushed. What I was expected to do, even though I believed in it, wasn't standing up to this searing voice. I was all alone in no man's land, and the convoy was happening in a few short hours. Well, the voice never quieted down, and I continued to feel the tension build up inside as the things I was told to do, the right things, just weren't adding up anymore. The war raged on into the next day, the next week, and by six months into it, I had seen so much human suffering at the hands of the good guys, something broke inside me. Fellow soldiers were raping their female battle buddies in broad daylight with no consequence, while other soldiers I knew were torturing people at Abu Ghraib prison. I was done dodging death. I couldn't find the good guys anymore, anywhere. Death no longer seemed like it was the worst thing that could happen to me. It wasn't that I wanted to die. I just couldn't see any more of it. I caught myself whispering, I've seen enough, Jesus. Take me home. The low point came around Christmas time when I had stopped putting my bulletproof plates in my flak vest. My soul was so weary. I just wasn't trying so hard to protect my life. So many things that I had grown up trusting to be good weren't actually doing good things. And people who were supposed to be bad were inviting me in for tea. After sitting on the floor and looking at their family photo albums and fancy wedding pictures, I was struck by how their lives were destroyed by Saddam's regime and that their dignity was trampled by the American occupation. At the same time, I saw soldiers looking for a way to stay human in the middle of being asked to do dehumanizing things. My black and white world was crumbling around me and I didn't know how to piece it back together. This is the context where the story of my unmaking begins. This too is from my journal. It's written as a letter to the soldier who changed my story by sharing his story one day in the desert. The tent flaps sang as the daily sandstorm bellowed down and twisted through the makeshift tent hospital that I had brought one of my soldiers to who had slit his wrists the night before. You asked me something while I waited for my soldier to be examined by the doctor. I never looked you in the eye when you spoke, out of instinct. Protect and defend wasn't just the motto of the army. It had become like breathing to me. Don't talk, avoid anyone's gaze, melt into the background. And you might make it through another day without getting pinned against a wall or followed to the latrine at night. You're a medic, right? So are you a conscientious objector too? You asked. Conscience, the word seemed to worm its way between the missing plates in my flak vest near my insides. Spinning, my thoughts couldn't even place what you were talking about. I had been subsisting on fear and suffering for months. Fed us versus them mantras. Kill first, ask questions later. I had never fully decided 
whether I would kill anyone. I was still hiding behind the fact that my job was to keep people alive and medevac them to the rear. I had accepted the reality of having to watch people die, but I didn't think if I would pull the trigger. Me too, you said, rambling on over top of my silence. I got a wife and two kids back home, but I love Jesus, and there is no way I would take a chance away from anyone else to know God by killing him. I would rather go home to be with Jesus than take that chance away from somebody else. My own breath was crushing me now. I could barely breathe in as those words singed my weary nerves. Truth was tattooed on my soul, and it was burning my skin as your words stood staring me long and hard in the face that day. This was a story that, la- that made me lay down my weapon in the sand and choose to see Iraqis not as my enemy, but as a fellow image bearer of God. I don't even know his name, but he was part of what would change my life, and I never even looked him in the eye. I wouldn't even recognize his face today. That's how oblivious we are to the moments that alter us forever. His story changed my life. His story allowed me to walk away from something that would have destroyed me, even though my 23-year-old self didn't even know it. I can live with the nightmares that I have from the war, but I couldn't live with what I would have carried had I kept loading my weapon every day. The weight of taking a life would have been too much to take. After I came home, I picked up a book called What It's Like to Go to War. Ironic, right? Well, one thing I read made me close the book. The author said that the combat experience becomes more problematic the farther away from it you get. Judging from the statistics on veteran suicide rates, homelessness, and the unprecedented amount of Vietnam War veterans who are right now clamoring for mental health services, I couldn't even call his bluff. This was not good news for me. I knew that reconciling my war experience wasn't about how to close the book on a chapter of my life. It was going to be about wrestling for how I was going to live the rest of my life. The war had unmade me. I had been given a small gift of grace to realize that I was never going to value my life over another person's or be so afraid of death that I would take a life off this planet. But that was just what I wouldn't do. I still didn't know what I would do. I still didn't know what peace meant. I'd be frustrated by glib bumper stickers saying, make peace, not war. I vacillated between deeming peace, a do-nothing cop-out, and a pie-in-the-sky wish for a storybook world. My soul was wrestling hard. It was no longer a theoretical belief system about how to confront violence. I wore scars on my soul for being part of this war. I didn't need any more medals from the army or more thank yous on Veterans Day. I needed to breathe. I needed a new lens to see the world through. I needed a new posture to walk through life because my old belief system had betrayed me and left my soul shattered. This was when I stumbled across the Preemptive Love Coalition's webpage, and I was stunned. I had never heard of anyone who recognized that after declaring war on Iraq and occupying their country for a decade, we were two communities at odds who were desperate for reconciliation. My heart was pounding as I watched Preemptive Love Coalition's TED Talk explain the idea that instead of attacking an enemy preemptively, they were striking their enemies first with love. Preemptive love was healing hearts across enemy lines and remaking our world as we knew it. Just who were these two 20-somethings who alongside courageous Iraqi doctors, religious leaders, and local businessmen were daring to reimagine that all the violence done could be unmade right in the middle of a relationship full of two wars and bloody casualties on all sides? 
that Iraqis could trust Americans, that Sunnis and Shias could live and work together, that you didn't have to choose one, but you could choose them all. Jeremy Courtney, one of Preemptive Love Coalition's founders, declares, I no longer accept the zero-sum worldview that says we cannot simultaneously be on the side of the Democrats and the Republicans, Americans, Israelis, and Iranians, Jews and Palestinians, Sunnis and Shias, Arabs, Kurds, and Turks. I choose them all. Every headline of new violence didn't batter my heart the same way anymore. That news story? wasn't the end of the story anymore. I was getting to see past the headlines and reimagine what could happen next in the story. I was caught for this new way of seeing people I didn't agree with, for tragedies, for the world. This was how I wanted to start living. I saw this posture changing, how I saw Charleston, Ferguson, politics, and the Iran deal. If preemptive love could choose to reach out to Iraqis and build a new story, then maybe, just maybe the divides and violence in my own country could have a new story. In all my reading and wrestling, I never heard anything like this. The idea that we can confront violence and not just sigh and turn the page, but unmake the damage done by striking our enemies first with love. The dam of tension inside my soul broke. This was the very same truth that had seared my soul in the desert tent so many years ago. This was the new posture the courageous lens that reimagined what could be instead of only grieving for what has happened. Preemptive love was healing hearts across enemy lines, and mine was the first in line. Unmaking of violence and the remaking of our world ignited me and released me from hopelessness. I was reengaged to choose love first and reimagine new endings to my story. This was the way to walk through my past and into my present. I can't undo violent conflict, nuclear arms, or the fact that we declared war on Iraq twice. I can't change that 500,000 Iraqi civilians have died due to war-related causes. That's half a million. But I can pursue loving the people that those decisions hurt and marginalized. I can love across enemy lines and remake our world. This idea of loving our enemies and creating a new story was pumping bright red hope into my heart and soul. Us versus them was getting pushed aside while love that bravely struck first was replacing it. My soul was being put back together by every name I saw donating to wage peace alongside Preemptive Love Coalition in Iraq, Libya, and Iran. Preemptive Love was remaking our world one person at a time. In the beginning, Arab children were being sent to Israel for their heart surgeries. Their new life and the scar across their chest pushed back the rhetoric of violence and enemies. Preemptive love has opened up a new reality for me and for you to walk in a world that has forever told us who our enemy is and who we will never be able to trust. Love is winning, folks. We are being welcomed into places that were impossible. Fallujah to crit. Iran, Libya, places where the history is bloody and battle deep on both sides. We are loving those who no one else will. This isn't just two 20-somethings crazy idea. It is literally remaking our world into something unrecognizable. Preemptive love has journeyed through Iraq, leaving more than 1,000 healthy children with mended hearts. As their parents celebrate a birthday they never thought their child would have, their enemy's love is put on display. While ISIS is surrounding and starving the city of Haditha, 
Preemptive love is dropping food to those same people from a helicopter. ISIS is being defied as people are getting cared for on the same beach as they're trying to execute hope one person at a time. In the wake of these mended hearts, Iraq's neighbors have noticed. Those neighbors have asked preemptive love to come and care for their children too. Countries that the U.S. can't even talk to have reached out and trusted someone they've been told forever not to trust and created a friendship. 23 children in Iran have mended hearts today and Libya's sick kids are playing soccer. I believe that we were made for this, that the posture of preemptive love gives us a map to lean into love without disqualifying ourselves or the other person. Finally, we can be liberated from choosing camps or digging further into our own trenches and are free to get on with what we are made to do, remake our world one person at a time. Preemptive love was my escape hatch from self-protecting fear, the next faith debate, and political demonizing. It freed me from those things and allowed me to be launched straight into what I believe you and I are aching to be doing, unmaking violence one person at a time. Our world is aching for individuals who are ready to sidestep the disagreements, self-protection, and see each other as worth loving, worth listening to. When us versus them gets out of the way, we can see our enemies as individuals, just like ourselves. And this isn't theoretical. It's as real as the person who's sitting next to you today. Will we dare to reimagine the differences that we believe about each other? Will we choose to run after the people that we are told to dismiss or fear? Will we run after healing hearts across enemy lines, beginning with our own? Well, I ached for a redo in the most desperate way. Faced with two options, whether I'd continue to live my life the way I was, or reimagine how I saw the world. I decided to step away from uncertainty, from military recognition, and away from seeing good guys and bad guys. I was gonna start seeing people who weren't even part of my group. I was gonna start building a new story, not rationalizing the old story. I was no longer gonna dismiss the peace people as do-nothing hippies. And I wasn't gonna dismiss the entire military as power abusers, rapists, and torturers. I couldn't tell my two young sons that they were the good guys. All I could tell them was that they each had a tremendous ability to rebuild the world or to rip it apart. And they were gonna get to choose, probably each day of their lives. People were gonna start to become individual people to me. And I decided that I was all in and they were all worth it. That same way that the posture of preemptive love runs after loving people without asking questions first, they pursued loving me. They gave me a chance to put my hands in the remaking of my story in Iraq. This posture of love remade me. It broke off the burdens that I carried for my fellow soldiers, both Iraqi and American. For all the unjust violence, I saw raining down on Iraqi children, mothers, and grandmothers who were caught in the crossfire of corrupt governments and occupying forces. It gave me a place to exhale parts of me were coming alive again. Life was being put back into my battle-torn soul. I no longer had to grieve. I could run out and live out a new story. Not one where I was part of violence, but one where I'm unmaking the violence. I am getting to remake our world, and it is mind-blowing. I no longer have enemies. I'm running towards the people I used to fear. I was given a chance to wage peace alongside preemptive love, not just dream of peace. Each donor that I get to thank still gives me tingles. 
I can't believe there are other people who want to love the people we fought two wars with. Hope is evident as I see each individual deciding today that they will rebuild our world by providing for a neighbor across the sea. One Iraqi donor wrote me and told me how he was a teenager during the war and worked as a translator for the American army. He retold how he had to leave his village because translators were being executed for working with the US. How his body is riddled from scars, from bombs and bullets. But he cries like a baby when he sees the children of Iraq getting life-saving heart surgeries and a chance to go back to school. We were both surprised to have crossed paths through a peace-waging group. We wondered if we had even ever worked together without knowing it. He's in Idaho now, but he unconsciously reminded me of where we had both been when he signed off the letter with, stay safe. In November, I'm getting the honor of going back to Iraq for the first time since I waged war there. I'll be taking part in the Remedy Heart Surgery Mission in the same city that I tented outside of for a year. I'm gonna walk into the same city where a female soldier was captured as the first POW at the beginning of the war. Words can never speak out the debt that I owe to Iraq and its people. The war disarmed me and I'm forever grateful. It allowed me to see the evil in my own heart and release the person in front of me from being the enemy. It liberated me to live and to love in a way I never dreamed possible. My old self would snicker at my new self's childish ideas of remaking the world. That old me shriveled up and died so that the real me, the whole me, could come fully alive. I'm living out a second chance to wage peace in the same city I waged war in, getting a second chance to build trust in the same city I brought fear to. It all sounds so dreamy, so Nicholas Sparks-ish, but did I mention that I'm still scared? I still wonder if my old survival instincts will kick in, and my feet will freeze to the floor like cement when I'm supposed to be walking on the plane. But I know that in the heart of conflict, there's only one kind of love big enough to change a nation, to change you and to change me, a love that chooses to strike first. Well, dying is pretty natural and self-explanatory. That's the army medic coming out. But how to live is really the question worth wrestling over. The world may tell you that there are no second chances. Never believe it. Because today, you and I are becoming our real selves, our fully alive selves. During your time here at Samford, I hope you'll have opportunities where you bump into yourself and are brutally honest about it. I believe we live and die by our stories. But here's the truth. No matter how many amazing stories you've read or heard, all that we are really left with is our own story. And I believe that your story is worth wrestling for. I'm inviting you to wage peace alongside Preemptive Love Coalition and to live stories that will confuse your friends, make your faith community uncomfortable, and your political party nervous. I'm asking you to walk out changing the world one person at a time, bravely beginning with yourself. I'm inviting you to lead the way today as courageous people who are unafraid of loving people who no one else will. I pray you will live a story of walking past what you know and striking first with love, asking questions later. Wage peace today by trusting someone who hasn't earned your trust, who doesn't already trust you. Choose to listen extravagantly to someone who's across the trenches from you. When you reach out and treat someone as worth knowing, you stomp on the inflated perception of our differences. I believe we are makers we are made to build and to rebuild what hurricanes, wars, and shootings take away from us all. 
today, we can reimagine what Iraqis have experienced of Americans. We can reimagine what the rebuilt communities of Charleston, Ferguson, and so many others could look like. Let's no longer accept the zero-sum worldview that says we cannot simultaneously be on the side of the Democrats and the Republicans, Americans, Israelis, and Iranians, Jews and Palestinians, Sunnis and Shias, Arabs, Kurds, and Turks. Let's choose them all. Together, let's stop leaning left or right. Let's lean in. Let's lean forward, because that's where love lives. Thank you. For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.